Anyways, my name's Doug, and uh, I have the awesome privilege of getting to work with Kevin and Ramey and John and work with students and kids here at Lakeside, and it's just an awesome privilege, and it's really great to be with you here this morning, so good to see you guys. How many of you guys would say about yourself that you are a, a handy person? Like, you just, you're good and you like to fix things. Raise your hand. It's okay. Be proud. Yeah. Not many. Wait, put your hands up. I can't even see. Okay. All right, put your hands down. How many of you guys are married to someone who's handy or likes to fix things? Okay, a little, probably the same. Okay, confession. How many are not handy? Like, your idea of fixing something is call somebody. Yes. So in, in 2011, Michelle and I, we, uh, we bought our first house. And one of the things that I discovered was there are so many things at a house that can break. Isn't that true? I mean, there's something about it. Like, I was doing the whole, like, apartment living for years, and it was awesome because, you know, light bulb goes out, something breaks, you call the office, man. Somebody comes out and fixes it. And now all of a sudden we have this house. And stuff starts breaking. And I quickly realized that I am not good at fixing things. I'm just not. In fact, my talent is I am a good at breaking things. Like, give me a sledgehammer, a jackhammer. I'm your guy. I can knock stuff down. I can, I'm just hard on stuff. I don't know what it is. But over the years of owning this house, I've actually, with the help of YouTube and Google, I've actually gotten a lot better at fixing stuff. And how many of us, we've done this before, like you, something at your house, it's bothering you. You see it all the time. It's that door that sticks or makes that noise or it's that eyesore. It's that disorganized closet. It's that kitchen that's sort of like haphazardly put together. And then you get the time, you get the money, you get the skill set, and you go in and you fix it. Is that not the greatest feeling in the world? I mean, it's awesome. Like, we take pictures, we put it on social media, we're like, tell our friends. I mean, you have people over for dinner, and after you organize your closet, you take everybody into your closet, you're like, hey, look at this thing, it's awesome. Like, everything's where it should be. Fixing stuff is a lot of fun, when you know how to do it, and you can do it. My, uh, my father-in-law is probably one of the handiest guys I know, and he's, um, he's a car guy. He just loves cars. Any car guys or gals out there? Okay. So um, he loves it. I'm not a car guy. I um, actually don't know much about cars. I, I like two things about cars. I like cars that work, and I like cars that are paid for. That's my deal. Work and paid for. And, but my father-in-law, he's a car guy, and he loves the journey of putting a car together, classic cars. And uh, I was actually texting him the other day. I said, yeah, I'd like to show your car in church. I'd like to show your Corvette. He's like, Doug, I don't own a Corvette. I'm restoring a 1969 Camaro. <laughs> it's a big difference, a big difference. I have another friend who, he, uh, he likes to go four-wheeling, and I'm always like, hey, how's your Jeep doing? He's like, I don't own a Jeep. I have a Land Cruiser, Land Cruiser. So I'm not a car guy, but four years ago, my father-in-law got this shell of a 1969 uh, Camaro. I almost said Corvette, and here it is. So four years ago, this is what he started with. And over time and over the years, lots of labor, blood, sweat, tears, going online, finding parts, welding, cutting, attaching, troubleshooting, 
Four years later, this is what it looks like. It's pretty sweet, right? You're taking a picture over here. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anything about cars, but I know that that is awesome. Like, we go over to his house. We go in the garage. He fires it up and just, like, it shakes your insides. Awesome. It is so fun to see things that are broken, out of place, disorganized, messed up, and to have them be put right. And it's amazing. I mean, how many things can break at a house? And I've been thinking about this. Like, there's so many things that break at our house, but how many things can actually break in our lives? Because a house is fun, right? You can fix the drainage issue. You could get the sprinklers functioning properly. You can get the, the lights fixed. You can get the pipes going well. I mean, you can, you can fix a house. But how many of us, there are things in areas of our lives that there, there really is no fix. There really is no remedy. There are so many aspects of your life and my life that are just perpetually undone. Like, there's no box that you can check and say, yep, I've completed that. I mean, if you're a parent here, when are you done parenting your kids? Like, when is, never, when is that task completed? Like, when you paint a wall, you get the paint, you get the bucket, you get the roller, you go to the wall, you paint it, it wasn't painted, now it looks great. Awesome. But when it comes to our kids, when it comes to our health, when it comes to our marriage, when, I, when it comes to these Areas of our lives where there is no finish line. There is no guy with a checkered flag. There is no box that we can check. There is no completion. There is no fix. It's challenging. You may have something going on right now in your life, a health issue, or know somebody with a health issue. Health issues are, they're funny because, you know, you can get like a medication, you can change your diet, you can exercise. But there are some health issues that there, there just is no fix for that. Like, I don't care how much spinach you eat and Pilates you do, there is no answer for that. There's no fix. How many of us walked in this morning and we're facing a problem with no answer? We're facing something in our parenting, in our marriage, with our health, maybe with our finances, a situation we've come into where there's, I don't know what the solution is to this. This morning, we're going we're gonna to look at a story of a man who faced a problem that could not be fixed. We're going to meet a guy who had a need that could not be met. He's someone that we, we can relate to. And in this story, it's going to give us insight into, I think, three things. It's going to tell us something about ourselves. It's going to tell us something about the world we live in. And it's going to tell us something about God. So if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5. Or if you have your smartphones, you can, like the Version app, you can go to 2 Kings chapter 5. It's near the beginning of the book. So Genesis, keep going right. And you'll, uh, you'll hit it. Second Kings chapter 5. This is how it begins. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man 
in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. The storyteller begins by saying, there's this guy, Aram, and he's the general. He's the premier up-and-coming leader for the king of Syria. He's the winning general. He's the guy who leads the army into battle and succeeds. We learn that Aram was a brave man. He was a rich man. He was a powerful man. He was an educated man. He had everything that any man could want. He had it all. I mean, his resume was stacked. He knew all the right people. He had all the right skills. His life was going in a great direction. Yet the storyteller adds this one little detail about Nahum. It says Nahum was a valiant soldier, but he had this one thing. He was a leper. He had leprosy. I don't know if you know much about leprosy. I was actually Googling it this week, and um, I was going to show you some pictures, but this is kind of like a family gathering, so I decided not to. But it's worth, it's worth a Google later. Leprosy is a terrible, debilitating disorder. It has something to do with these, this bacteria that will get on your skin, and it actually attacks your nerves to the point where the nerves start to die and shut down. And it afflicts people generally on their extremities, their eyes, their face. It causes blindness. I mean, it, it is a nasty, ruthless physical disorder. And in the ancient world, it not only plagued people, incredible pain, physically, it also plagued people socially. There was, an, there was a social stigma that went with being a leper. Much like the social stigma that goes with mental disorders today. It was something that people, if you, if you had leprosy, you either did something wrong, the gods were mad at you, there was something, it's, something, it's your fault basically. And you're dirty, you're icky, and, and get away from me. So here, here the storyteller says we have this valiant man, this great man, this powerful man, this accomplished man, yet he's a leper. He has leprosy. And the thing about leprosy is it doesn't, it doesn't stay stagnant like a lot of disorders do. It, it progresses. It gets worse over time. And Naaman's disorder was getting worse. The storyteller continues. It says, now a band of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she says to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Nahum listens to this girl, and he goes to his master, the king, and tells, tells his master what the girl from Israel had said. And the king looks at Aram and sees how valuable he is as his lead general, his most accomplished military leader, and says, by all means, go. I will send with you a letter to the king of Israel, commanding him to heal you. See, the way the world worked back in the ancient, in the ancient world the religion of a particular country supported the people who were in charge of that country. So the gods and the temple and the worship and the way that country functioned was supported by the religion of that country. So this king of Syria thinks, you know, I, if this prophet really does exist, and he really is in the land of Israel, we're going to move through the proper channels. So I'm going to send my general 
to the king, and the king, because the prophets always worked for the king, the king will then command the prophet to heal Nahum. So Nahum sets off, letter in hand. He takes the letter, but he doesn't just go just with the letter. He's got to go into the country in style. He's got to go into the country showing everyone how great a man he is. So the Bible says that he left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. He was coming to that land ready to buy his cure. He was coming to the land ready to demand that the prophet would heal him. He shows up with his best weaponry, his best, most prestigious battle armor, and he brings with him, as John Bowles would say, basically a bajillion dollars. He brought more money on that trip than probably anyone in Israel had in their bank account. I mean, he showed up with his greatness on display. And so he arrives in Israel. He goes up to the king's palace. And he reads the letter to the king. He says, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Nahum to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. So imagine for a second, you're the king of Israel. You're in your palace. You wake up, normal day. And then all of a sudden, some king from a country near you, a warring country, sends his most prestigious, seasoned most powerful military leader to your door with a letter that says you need to cure him of leprosy right now. Is that a a good day or a bad day? That's a bad day. And the king doesn't miss a beat, right? The Bible says that he actually, when he hears this, he tears his clothes. He's like, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Can I, I, this is an impossible task. This is something that no man, nowhere could do. This is a lose-lose situation. This is not good. This is the beginning of a war between Israel and Syria. But the news travels, and it reaches the prophet's ear. And when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent this message to him. Oh, king, why have you torn your robes? Kind of a rhetorical question. Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Send the man to me, and he will know, and his country will know, and his king will know that there is a prophet of God in Israel. So Naaman hops back in his chariot, gathers his weapons, his money, his servants, the whole caravan, the whole dog and pony show, and they journey down to Elisha's one-bedroom, two-bedroom, ancient shack. And it just, I imagine the noise, just the rumbling of the chariot, and just the, the arrogance and the pomp, and the, just the, the sense of, like, I am this great man coming to you, demanding this great deed. He arrives, he pulls up to Elisha's house, and Elisha does something that Naaman didn't expect. Elisha, not putting down his scroll, not stopping what he's doing, sends his servant out to Nahum, to the great man. And his servant goes out there and says, Naaman, you need to go dunk seven times in the Jordan River, and then you'll be clean. 
Imagine you're Naaman, and you traveled hundreds of miles to Israel. You're a great military leader, a proud man, a man who never waits for anything, a man who has power, a man who has influence, a man who is in physical agony. With a letter in hand from a king, you go to this king of this nation who he sends you to some obscure village somewhere where there's this supposed prophet in a shack somewhere. You go up to the prophet's house. The guy doesn't get out of the shack to meet you. Instead, he sends you on another 20-mile journey to the Jordan River, this little podunk creek in the middle of nowhere to bathe. How would you feel? The Bible says that he flew into a rage, that he was absolutely beside himself. I imagine him stomping around Elisha's house, getting ready to go into his armory, grab his biggest battle axe, and go in there and kill the prophet. This was a violent man. This was a man who made a living killing and destroying other people and other nations. This is a man who doesn't like to wait, and this is a man who doesn't take orders from some nobody. Naaman was heated. He was enraged. And then this incredibly brave servant walks up to this raging man and says, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be clean. This very wise and brave servant speaks up to angry Nahum and says, and and I just imagine, this is the moment where all of Naaman's arrogance and violence and how could I be treated this way, self-righteous, I mean, all of that angst just dissipates. Because his servant comes up to him and says, Name, my father, remember your great need. Remember how none of the doctors in Syria could help you. Remember how you've, tra- you've moved heaven and earth to try to find your cure, and there's been no answer. All he's asking you to do is go a little further, find a river. Why not, why not give it a go? Why not try it? One of the most amazing things about the story is that this angry, arrogant, hurting man listens to the servant. He gets back in his chariot, loads up the horses, gets everybody back in the caravan, and they take that 20-mile journey from the hills of Samaria down to the Jordan Valley. And I imagine this great man, as he gets to the bank of the Jordan River, there's kids splashing in the water, there's women washing their clothes, and Rivers may be a generous term. It's more like a little creek. And it's just this dirty, middle-of-nowhere spot. And here's this great man with all this just arrogance about him walking up to this creek saying, hey, kids, get out of the way. i got to do something. He's just like kind of pushing his way in. And then he walks out into the water. And like the prophet said, he dips once. Dips twice, three times, four, five, six, and seven. 
And the Bible says that when he came up the seventh time, his flesh was restored. He became clean like a young boy. At that moment, the greatest pain of his life went away. The problem that could not be fixed was solved. Naaman didn't just get a med or a prescription or treatment. He actually found in the river that day the cure. Naaman found the cure for his leprosy. But something else happened that day. He didn't just find the cure for his skin. He actually found the cure for his deep need. He found the cure for his heart. He was a changed and transformed man. This guy who rolled up into town with so much money and and letters from the king and a statement of how powerful he was and so much arrogance about him is now a changed man. And he gets back into the chariot, gets all of his servants and moseys back up to the prophet's house. And this time, Elisha, putting down his scroll, actually gets up and meets him out front. And what Nahum says next is one of the most profound professions of faith in all of the Old Testament. In fact, I can't think of another pagan military leader who says what Naaman is about to say. Look at what he says. He says, he stood before Elisha and he said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except the God of this place. And Naaman, man, he traveled the world. He made a living destroying the gods of other nations. I mean, he knocked down their temples. He crushed their idols. He, he was in the business of destroying gods. And he looks at this, this prophet, this man, Elisha, and he looks at all the attendants around, everybody that was there, and says, there is no God in the whole world besides the God of this land, the God of this place. So Elisha, please take all that I brought as a gift What was a bargaining chip, what was a statement of his power and his arrogance, suddenly he's now, I just want to give it to you, Elisha. Please take it. Elisha wisely says, you know, he, you know, when he offered him back the bajillion dollars, uh, Elisha could have taken probably some of the money, but he knew in that moment that there was something more important than money happening here. He needed Naaman to know that what has happened, the transformation that he experienced, is something that you cannot buy. It's something that you cannot demand of God to do for you. It's something that you have to just receive freely. So he says, no, I won't take your money. And then Naaman asks him what at first seems like a really weird request. He says, if you will not take the money... Please let your servant be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offering and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down 
and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And then it's super crazy. Look what Elisha says. He says, go in peace. It's cool. Go in peace. And he gives them the dirt. And Naaman leaves Israel that day as a changed man, as a man transformed. When I first read this, I didn't really, at first glance, it just seems weird. Like, why is he asking for some donkey loads of dirt? Like, that's, that's an odd thing. Like, does he just want, like, a souvenir? Like, the prophet healed me, and now I need a little, like, you know, kind of keepsake for this moment? Or I, then I was thought, like, well, maybe does he want to take, like, Israel's dirt and, like, plant a garden back home? It's like, you know, n- none of that stuff. In fact, in the ancient world, this was a, a normal thing to do. There was something about what he was saying to Elisha and what he was saying to everyone around him and what he was saying when he would arrive back in his home country is that I now worship the God of Israel. This dirt, and he probably took it and built an altar with it when he got home to Syria. This dirt it represents the God whom I serve. And when I lead my master into his temple and when I help him bow down, he's bowing down, but the God I serve, I worship this God from Israel. This dirt signifies the God whom I love. The Israelites, when they were taken into captivity into Babylon, there was actually accounts of them bringing dirt from Jerusalem with them into Babylon. And it wasn't like magic dirt. What it was, it was a statement of the God that they worship. It was a statement of the God that they love, a God that they would pursue and look to to meet their needs. Naaman left that day going to his country to create a worshiping outpost for the God of Israel. I think there's three things we learn in this story. First thing we learn is that as Naaman discovered Naaman was needy. Naaman was a needy man. He was a resource man, a successful man, yet all those resources and all that success could not meet his deepest need. Do you know that you're needy? Do I know that I'm needy? Some of us, we walked in this morning and we we know it loud and clear that we are needy. We are facing something that There's no fix for that. There's no answer for that. We have a deep need. For others of us, we walked in this morning, and you may even be a little offended that I said you're needy. I'm just like, I'm not needy. I I got my stuff in order. Like, I'm successful. Like, I'm, I, I built my company. Like, I've got, I've got resources. Like, I've good, good social skills. I have a lot. I, I generate wealth. I create jobs. Like, I'm not needy. Yet all of us know deep down. If we're honest, we are a phone call away, a moment away, a mistake away from remembering and recognizing our great need. And Naaman knew his need. The second thing that Naaman discovered, and and we, we know this, 
The world is chronically insufficient at meeting our needs. Isn't that true? Like, the world has a lot to offer. I mean, money is, is helpful. It helps us do our lives, right? Having a job is a good thing. Like, there's a lot of stuff that this world offers. But at the end of the day, there are needs that this world is chronically insufficient at meeting. We are needy, and the world is chronically insufficient at meeting those needs. And the third thing we discover is that Jesus is the answer for our great need, that God is the answer for our need. That's what Naaman was saying that day with that dirt. When he left town and had that dirt in tow, he was making a statement that the God of Israel is the answer to his great need. That God cured me, and that God is the true God that I will be worshiping for the rest of my life. Jesus loved this Naaman story. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 27, Jesus comments. He uh, is speaking to these Jewish people at the time, and they were um, debating whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus pipes up and says, you know, in, in chapter 4, verse 27, it says, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian was cleansed. Jesus credits Nahum as having authentic faith. And when he left that day with that dirt, it was a statement about the God that he trusted in, the God that he would begin worshiping for the rest of his life, and he would go and create this worshiping outpost in the land of Syria. This is, um, this is our launch weekend, and um, you know, it's hard to believe summer's coming, but uh, there's a lot happening for students this year, in this, in this uh, summer. You know, we got uh, Blitz Camp, and then LIT, leadership and training for our middle schoolers, and our high school summer camp, and there's just like so much stuff happening. And one of the things that, the reason we do this stuff is it, I believe student ministries and working with kids is all about creating environments for those kids to meet the God who can actually meet their needs. See, you can't make somebody love Jesus. You can't make them believe. You can't force them to come to him. But what we can do is we can create spaces. We can take some normal dirt and we can make it a place where people can connect to God where people can come to worship him, where students can come and meet this God who loves them so much. May you and I, may we be like Nahum. May we come to recognize our great need. May we understand that this world is chronically insufficient at meeting our needs. And may we discover the God who loves us and is ready and willing to meet us. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this Nahum story. Thank you for his faith, his love for you, and his desire to worship you, and just the example that he is to us. God, I pray for for us this morning. We have needs. We sometimes we're aware of those needs, sometimes we're not. And God, you hold the answer for our great needs. And God, I pray just as we um, 
move into this summer and as we move into this new season, that we would know you, that we would love you, that we would worship you, and that we would experience your best. God, we love you and thank you for this morning. Amen.